Hello and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. Today's episode will take a look back at the short-lived 1980s movie production and distribution company, Scotty Brothers Pictures. In 1967, Anthony J. Tony Scotty was a struggling actor whose sole claim to fame was an appearance as Tony, the heartthrob husband of Sharon Tate's character in the popular film version of Jacqueline Suzanne's bestseller, The Valley of the Dolls. The following year, he'd film a television pilot based on the Frank Sinatra movie, Tony Rome, but the show would not sell. He'd also have a couple minor musical hits, including the song, Come Live With Me, from the Valley of the Dolls soundtrack. Come live with me And be my love If only for a day Come live with me And see my love How fast it fades away But by 1971, Tony hadn't worked in a couple of years, so he decided to abandon his career in front of the camera and joined the record production arm of film studio MGM as a senior vice president. In 1974, Tony joined forces with his brother Ben, a former defensive back for the Redskins, Eagles, and 49ers from 1959 to 1964 to form Ben Scotty Productions, a music marketing firm that went on to handle such artists as the Electric Light Orchestra and Survivor. In 1979, the brothers branched out into the television business, producing the pop music countdown show America's Top Ten, an offshoot of the popular radio show America's Top 40, which of course would feature Casey Kasem in the MC role. In 1981, the success of America's Top Ten would lead the Scotty brothers to hire Joseph E. Kovacs, a seasoned entertainment industry executive, to form a new entity called All American Television to distribute television shows and sell commercial time to advertisers. In 1985, Kovacs spearheaded the company's decision to go public, and all-American television began trading as an over-the-counter stock off the major stock markets, a move usually reserved for low-priced stocks called penny stocks. One of the main reasons all-American would go public was so that they could start producing and distributing their own motion pictures. But in order to build a distribution company, one needs movies to distribute. Since they hadn't actually made any movies yet, they would need to acquire a couple of titles to get their company started. The first Scotty Brothers picture release would be Raju Patel's In the Shadows of Kilimanjaro. Patel was just 24 years old when he helped to produce the surprise hit Tom Hanks film, Bachelor Party, and he would follow that comedy hit up with his own independent production, which he would also direct. 
In the Shadow of Kilimanjaro would tell the story of a group of people living in Kenya in 1984 who needed to protect themselves from a group of 90,000 rampaging wild baboons who have come out of their native habitat due to a massive drought to find food and water. Is it an action film? Is it a comedy? Is it a drama? Or a horror film? Yes, it's an action, comedy, drama, horror film, and it's pretty damn ridiculous. Jonathan Reese Myers and Timothy Bottoms do their best to make the most of a bad situation, but at least they got a paid trip to Kenya for their efforts, am I right? The shoot in Kenya was not without its mishaps, though. Director Patel, 2nd AD Hope Goodwin, and transportation co-captain Samson Olu Landatu would all sustain injuries when a Range Rover they were traveling in heading towards the set one day had to swerve off-road to avoid hitting a giraffe. They each would need to be hospitalized for three days. The $8 million film would open in 74 theaters in New York City and another 34 in Los Angeles on May 9, 1986, and WOR-TV's Judith Christ would get a small blurb in the New York Times opening day ad which stated, quote, a thriller, ellipsis, chills and rich atmosphere, unquote. Which means there was some not quite very good stuff between, quote, a thriller, unquote, and, quote, chills and rich atmosphere, unquote. For someone who has gone to great lengths to not get quoted in ads, even going so far as calling his website Film Jerk, only to occasionally find myself quoted in an ad anyway, I find that truncated quote to be painful to read. Maybe it's why the quote does not appear in the opening day ad for the movie in the Los Angeles Times, which traditionally has a shorter lead time than its New York City counterpart. Maybe Chris got word of the blurb, realized how embarrassing it would be for her, and found a way to get a first-time distributor to never use it again. Not that it would matter much. While I do not have an exact theater count for its opening weekend, I do have an opening weekend gross of $181,410. Now, if it was only playing in those two markets, $181,000 from 108 theaters would be a very embarrassing per-screen average. It would be better than Canon Films' Dangerously Close, which also opened the same weekend, and it would be close to another new opener that weekend, Paramount's Fire with Fire. But the Scotty brothers would stop reporting grosses after those first three days. The following weekend, May 16th, would see the release of Philip Mora's Death of a Soldier. The Australian film was about the real-life American World War II soldier Eddie Leonsky, who, upon arriving in Melbourne two months after the United States entered the war, went on a little murder spree strangling three women to death over the course of 15 days. And although the murders were committed on Australian soil, he would be tried, convicted, and hung under an American military court, with no less than General Douglas MacArthur personally signing the order of execution. Director Mora and the producers wanted to bring several American actors to the Australian production, but the country's actors' union would only allow two. Reb Brown, who Mora had just worked with on The Howling 2 as Leonsky, and James Coburn as a fictionalized version of the American major 
who was assigned to defend Leonsky. And what's strange about that is the fact that Ira Rothgerber, the real major who was assigned to defend Leonsky, acted as a consultant on the film. While the movie shot in and around Melbourne, the production would be halted for a few weeks when the original production company parted ways with the film and a new production company came in and promptly fired Philippe Mora. Although he would be reinstated shortly thereafter, the delay wasn't Mora's fault per se. The $3 million production just ran out of money, and the new producers needed to find an additional million dollars to finish. Years after the film was completed, Coburn would give an interview about his career and would speak for a brief moment about Death of a Soldier, saying Mora didn't have the proper time to prepare the film and expressing disappointment in the way that it turned out. It was a hell of a good story, he said. The film would open at the prestigious Cinema One in New York City and would feature two quotes in its opening day New York Times ad, including another quote from Judith Christ. This time, the quote was not truncated in any way. The following week, the Christ quote was gone, but there'd be two additional glowing recommendations. But there would be no week three, and there would be no additional playdates until it opened on the West Coast at the Samuel Goldwyn Pavilion Cinemas in Los Angeles on August 29th, a good four and a half months after it played in New York City. This time, the ad featured seven quote blurbs, including Judith Christ, and this time the film would play for five weeks and eventually add another four screens. But how well it might have performed or how many other theaters it might have played at is rather tough to know. I can only find one other playdate for the film in Chicago, which ran for two weeks in late September and early October. The first actual Scotty Brothers production to be released by Scotty Brothers Pictures was the appropriately titled Eye of the Tiger. Gary Busey is Buck Matthews. After four years in Nam and three years in prison, he's come home to find his family worst enemy waiting for him. What in God's sakes wrong with you people? Don't you know what's going on out there? You know, it don't matter how we wish things were. It matters how we deal with how they are. You made a big mistake, Matthews. You know, nobody ever stood up to them before. They are going to take a person. Sometimes when I was in prison, I get a feeling before something bad would happen. Yeah. Yeah. These people killed my wife. And nobody's doing a thing about it. Do me a favor, huh? Get out of this town. Let these maggots have it. I'm not running. They're just playing with you, you know? Soon enough, they're gonna kill you. I know you'd be around here somewhere. You got a plan? I'm praying for vengeance.
fist to fist, and only one will survive. You and me! Gary Busey, Yafet Koto, Eye of the Tiger. Eye of the Tiger was directed by Richard C. Serafin, whose directing credits included such winners as the Farrah Fawcett action comedy Sunburn and a TV movie called The African Queen, substituting Warren Oates and Mariette Hartley for Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn, which would find Charlie and Rose recaptured by the Germans and forced to tug a big Nazi cannon to be used against local Allied forces. But the one thing about the director to his credit he could make a movie on budget and during the time frame given to him. The $3 million movie would begin production in Valencia, California on July 21, 1986 and would be shot, edited, scored, rated, and released by November 21st, four months to the day after shooting began. 45 theaters in New York City and 37 in Los Angeles are the only playdates I can find for the film. And, once again, I cannot find any reported grosses. Kevin Thomas of the Los Angeles Times would praise the performances of Busey and Koto, as well as co-stars Burt Remsen and Seymour Cassell, but would otherwise write the film off as just another routine vengeance exploitation picture. And he wasn't wrong. You've seen a better version of this film a hundred times before, and you've seen Gary Busey play a better variation of this role a dozen other times. If you were a teenager or a young adult in 1987, you may remember at the very least the poster for Gabriel Beaumont's comedy, He's My Girl. On it, comedian T.K. Carter is dressed like Marilyn Monroe in the iconic subway great scene from The Seven-Year Itch. I don't remember the movie at all, but as soon as I saw the poster while researching this episode, my mind went, Oh, yeah. In the film, Carter plays the best friend and manager of a singer who, when he wins a singing competition that includes a trip to Los Angeles, must bring a girl with him. So the friend and manager dresses in drag to help his friend and client. When announcing the film, originally titled Adios, Ohio, in September 1986, the Scotty brothers mentioned that this was one of eight films they had in development budgeted between 3 and $7 million, that they would finance themselves with the help of a $25 million line of credit from the French banking giant Credit Lyonnais. If you listened to our recent series on Empire Pictures, you have an idea of what happened to French banking giant Credit Lyonnais when they started providing lines of credit to a number of American independent distributors. Playing opposite Carter, as the would-be rock star was French actor-singer David Halliday, the son of two legendary French performers, Johnny Halliday, often called the French Elvis, and Sylvie Vartan, the biggest-selling female French singer in the world. Although David Halliday had never acted, he got the role thanks to his family connections. Mom was now married to none other than Tony Scotty, who had also signed his stepson up to a Scotty Brothers recording contract. And at some point, Johnny Halliday had even agreed to write a new song for his son to perform in the movie and to also sing that song himself 
on the ensuing movie soundtrack, although that ended up never happening. The younger Halliday would perform three songs in the film and also co-write one song for his mother to perform. The $3 million film would begin shooting in Los Angeles on September 22, 1986, with a new title, Pulling It Off, and a planned release of February 19, 1987. Before shooting completed in mid-October, the release date would move to March 11th, and then eventually to September 11th, 1987. When the film opened, Janet Maslin of the New York Times would pan the film overall, but give props to T.K. Carter for making the film relatively painless, and highlighting his nice legs within the first five words of her review. Opening on 31 screens in New York City and another 25 in Los Angeles, the film would gross a fairly respectable $170,000 in its opening weekend. But by its second week, the film would either lose half of its screens or be given a second feature to help drum up additional business. But like every other Scotty Brothers release, there'd be no further box office grosses reported. Karen Arthur's Lady Beware would begin its life in 1978 as part of a non-exclusive four-picture deal the director had with Universal Pictures. The movie was scheduled to begin production in Chicago in May of 1979, but Universal would drop the project before shooting commenced. Arthur, who hadn't directed since her 1978 film The Mafu Cage with Oscar winner Lee Grant, and Carol Kane stuck with the project, setting it up at Roger Corman's New World Pictures in the spring of 1984, with shooting scheduled to begin in Pittsburgh in June of 1985. But for some reason, New World would drop the project in February 85. In May 1986, after what Arthur would tell the Los Angeles Times in a profile about her, was 100 homes, 17 drafts, and eight writers later, Scotty Brothers picked up the project. In the interview, she would praise the brothers for allowing her to make the movie from a feminist point of view without gratuitous blood, sex, or gore. Production finally began on the film in Pittsburgh on July 21, 1986. Diane Lane stars as Katya, a window dresser for a Pittsburgh department store who is being stalked by a married man with a fixation on her. When Katya finds the man's wife, and warns her of her husband's stalking, the man goes into a rage and decides to kill the young woman he cannot have. Scotty Brothers originally planned on releasing the film in Los Angeles and New York City in late December 1986 for a one-week Oscar qualifying run before expanding to the top ten markets in February 1987 and a wide release a month later. But the film wouldn't get released until September 18, 1987. And the week before the film opened, Arthur was once again profiled by the Los Angeles Times, where she voiced her displeasure with the film. It seems that after Arthur turned in her final cut to the film, the Scotty brothers decided to recut the movie after receiving feedback from exhibitors based on a sample reel, changing the movie from a feminist account of psychological rape, which Arthur intended, to a standard exploitation film. The Scotties would insert outtakes of an unclothed lane to beef up the nudity in the movie, severely cut down the role of Katya's boyfriend, 
and completely eliminate a character played by Vivica Lindford, both who, according to Arthur, were instrumental in portraying Katya's perspective of the situation. The director noted the removal of these scenes had created strange transitions and curious character actions. The film would open up on three screens each in New York City and Los Angeles, including the famed Chinese Theater in Hollywood, but would gross a less than respectable $15,000 from those six theaters in its first three days. It would add a few screen here and there for several weeks, but when it was all played out, Lady Beware would only have grossed $169,000. It would not get any Oscar nomination. After winning the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for his devastating work in 1984's The Killing Fields, Dr. Hang S. Noor would continue to act in several more films before his untimely passing at the age of 55 in 1996. One of those films would be the 1989 Vietnam War drama The Iron Triangle. Based on the diary of an unknown Viet Cong soldier, the movie would star Bo Bridges as an American soldier captured in enemy territory who was protected by a Viet Cong guerrilla who believes saved his life when the American had the opportunity to kill him. Liam Watley, a native of South Vietnam whose father died in combat against the Viet Cong and who was evacuated with his mother just before the fall of Saigon, starred as the unlikely advocate for the American soldier, while Noor would play the VC colonel who would have killed Bridges had his soldier not stood in the way. Tony Scotty would produce the film, while his brothers Ben and Fred served as executive producers. And just to make sure everything was kept in the family, Johnny Halliday, the father of Tony's stepson, and one of the biggest stars in France, would play a small but important role as a French mercenary. The movie would open at the Scotty Brothers' preferred theater in Los Angeles, the Goldwyn Pavilion, as well as four theaters in New York City and one in Chicago on Friday, February 3, 1989 more than 16 months after the previous Scotty Brothers release. But despite some very good reviews from the likes of Playboy's Bruce Williamson, Jeffrey Lyons of Sneak Previews, and Gary Franklin, ABC's number two film critic after Joel Siegel, the film would be out of theaters after two weeks and no reported grosses from the company. British director Clive Donner's Stealing Heaven would be an odd acquisition for the Scotty Brothers, being it was a fact-based drama about a respected philosopher and teacher in 12th century Paris who falls for his intelligent and beautiful charge, the niece of a local aristocrat. The pair must hide their affection for each other because the teacher has been sworn to celibacy. The film would be the first production for the husband and wife team of Simon McCorkendale, best known in America for his roles on Falcon Crest and Manimal, and Susan George, who starred alongside Dustin Hoffman in Sam Peckinpah's Straw Dog. The film would be a gorgeous production, thanks in large part to cinematographer Michael Solomon, best known today as the DP for James Cameron's The Abyss and Ron Howard's Backdraft and Far and Away, before becoming a popular television director himself. Shot in Yugoslavia in early 1987, the Scotty Brothers would pick up the film out of the bankruptcy of Film Dallas in early 1989 because, again, 
they needed to keep that distribution pipeline filled, especially with their big bet coming up later in the year. But while the film would get very good reviews from both the Los Angeles and New York Times, the film would just not perform very well when it opened at the Goldwyn Pavilion Cinemas in Los Angeles and the Quad Cinemas in New York City on April 28, 1989. But the Scotty Brothers would not have the opportunity to get the film out to other markets, as Virgin Video, who owned the home video rights to the movie, decided to release it on VHS just 19 days after the film opened in theaters. In September 1983, Embassy Pictures released a movie that was considered to be a total failure, grossing but $4.7 million after being pulled from theaters three weeks into its release. It wasn't a great film by any means, but it would be quote-unquote discovered when it was released on home video and to HBO in early 1984. And one of the songs on the soundtrack, which originally stalled out at number 64 on the Billboard Hot 100 charts when it was released, started to climb back up the charts. The song, a throwback to early Bruce Springsteen called On the Dark Side, would eventually make it to number seven on the charts, and Eddie and the Cruisers would become a cult film. The Scotty Brothers had the rights to the song and the soundtrack, and they made millions off of both. And for some reason, they thought Eddie and the Cruisers, which bombed in theaters a second time when it was released after the success of the film on cable, was worthy of a sequel. Maybe they thought this time, having the distribution rights to the sequel themselves, would mean that the film would be handled better. Maybe they thought the soundtrack would sell even more copies than the first one. But unlike a James Bond movie, for example, where 50 million fans worldwide will go out and support a 007 movie, even if it were called Juicy Furburger and the Queef of Doom, there really wasn't that much of a demand for a sequel to Eddie and the Cruisers. For those who have not seen or even heard about it, Eddie and the Cruisers tells the story of a modern-day television reporter who starts to investigate the mysterious disappearance of a supposedly legendary rock star named Eddie Wilson 20 years earlier. After recording one album with his band, Eddie goes into the studio to record their second album called A Season in Hell. Inspired by the poems of Rimbaud, the dark and moody album is rejected by the record label, and the morning after said rejection, Eddie Wilson's car crashes through a railing and goes down a steep embankment. When the car is pulled out, there's no sign of Eddie, and the master tapes for the second album are also missing. The reporter is able to get various stories about the band and its charismatic lead singer during those times, and we get to see those scenes in flashbacks. And the movie ends with the documentary about the band airing on television, with the master tapes of A Season to Hell rediscovered after all that time, with a bearded Eddie Wilson watching the documentary on multiple televisions in the window of an appliance store. As I said before, Eddie and the Cruisers was not a good movie. It is worth at least one watch for the decent soundtrack and for the performances of Tom Berenger as the piano player for the band, 
Joe Pantoliano as the band's manager, and Ellen Barkin as the television reporter. So again, while they had the soundtrack rights to Eddie and the Cruisers, they didn't have the movie rights yet. Scotty Brothers would in fact begin Scotty Brothers Pictures to buy the sequel rights from the original production company, Aurora Pictures, to make that whole synergy thing happen. But it didn't come together all that quick. In fact, it would take 14 drafts of the screenplay over four years for the Scotty brothers to finally commit to making the movie. And commit, they did. Making their big bet, they put $10 million into the production and set a release date of August 19th. But they'd have to rush the film to get it done. Production would begin on March 7th in Montreal and would finish six weeks later in Las Vegas when the reformed Eddie and the Cruisers would make their triumphant return to the stage. In a scene that was filmed between Skid Row and Bon Jovi sets at the Thomas and Mack Center in Las Vegas. Well, with three members of the Cruisers, only Michael Paré, Michael Antunes, who plays the sax player, and Matthew Lawrence, who played the band's bassist, came back. The production team was able to complete the film in time for its mid-August release, and the Scotty brothers would send it out to 402 screens nationwide. It was their biggest release to date, and they would use the publicity machine in the lead-up to the release to announce that Paré had already been signed for an Eddie and the Cruisers Part 3. But there would be no need for a third film. The movie was bad. The reviews were horrible, bordering on hostile, especially towards Paré. And the movie would only gross $536,000 in its opening weekend, putting it in 19th place, more than $250,000 behind the third week of Steven Soderbergh's Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which was only playing in one-tenth of the theaters that weekend. The Scotty Brothers, as usual, would stop tracking the movie after its first weekend, but it would continue to play in mostly dollar houses for another four months. And it would be the last Scotty Brothers picture to be released, but it wouldn't be the last film they produced. That honor goes to Dan O'Bannon's 1991 horror film, The Resurrected. But the Scotty Brothers would continue to survive for several more years, in large part, thanks to their backing, David Hasselhoff, in moving Baywatch into syndication after NBC canceled the show in 1990 after one season. Not only would they benefit from the show's decade-long run, but they were in a position to have a number of Scotty Brothers Records artists both appear on the show and on the show's soundtrack, which would be released in 1994. In 1996, Scotty Brothers Records Scotty Brothers Pictures, and Scotty Brothers Productions would all be reincorporated as All-American Communications and then sold off to the British publishing company Pearson a year later. Within a year, Pearson would sell off all the Scotty Brothers contracts, masters, and music catalogs to a company called Free World Entertainment, which was at this point a subsidiary of Zombo Records whose best-known artists were the Backstreet Boys. But Zamba would pretty much dump every artist signed to Scotty Brothers 
except for Survivor and Weird Al Yankovic. And Free World Entertainment would get rebranded as Volcano Music. But Zamba would find themselves in financial trouble before too long and would sell themselves to the German-based Bertelsmann Music Group in 2003. BMG would merge with Sony Music in 2004 to create Sony BMG Music Entertainment. And since the late 2000s, Volcano pretty much only exists as a reissue label for such artists as Tool, Survivor, and Weird Al Yankovic. As of February 2021, the 83-year-old Ben Scotty and the 81-year-old Tony Scotty are still alive. Their younger brother, Fred, who produced Lady Beware, He's My Girl and the Iron Triangle for the family company, passed away in Culver City in 2014 and is buried in a family plot in Culver City next to their parents, Fred and Anne. We'll talk again soon. The Film Jerk Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you for listening. Good night.